1: Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Jack Gilden, author of Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Jack, thanks for being with us today.
0: Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me.
1: Jack is a Baltimore guy, and he's written for the Baltimore Sun, Orioles Magazine, and the Baltimore Jewish Times. In 2007, he won the David Frank Award for Excellence in Personality Profiles in the 26th Annual Simon Rockhour Contest. And his piece was called Silence of the Sage, which was an examination of the anti-Semitism of H.L. Mencken. Jack, go ahead and give the listener a little bit more background about yourself and uh, your education and your interest in sports.
0: Okay. Well, I went to uh, Washington College on the eastern shore of Maryland in uh, Chestertown, Maryland. It's a beautiful school. I studied the humanities. My father went to St. John's College in Annapolis, and he was a big believer in the, reading the classics and learning how to write by reading great writers. And so uh, that's what I did. I learned how to, to uh, write by reading the, the writers that I admired. Um, my work, besides that piece about H.L. Mencken that you mentioned, I also wrote long explorations about um, Bernard Malamud, and uh, about many uh, athletes, including Joe Lewis, uh, Earl Weaver, um, Cal Ripken, and, and others.
1: Did you uh, follow the Colts as a youngster?
0: Yeah, well, I was born kind of like in the middle of the action of my book, um, and I was born in Baltimore, and, uh, and uh, when I was growing up, the Colts were like gods in this city, and um, And, uh, you know, some of my earliest memories were really uh, the turmoil uh, of when the the team was kind of moving from the uh, Rosenblum regime that had made the Colts uh, such a successful franchise and, uh, they were moving over to the Ursay family ownership and uh, it had plummeted the entire franchise into a, a chaotic rain. And I can remember as a little boy listening to the men, you know, screaming and complaining about what had happened to their, to their football team. And
1: that's why this book is such an intriguing subject to me. I mean, you've got the best pure passer of the game, Johnny Unitas, and and Don Shula, who was an up and coming coach who you know would eventually become the winningest coach in NFL health history. Not to mention the perfect season. What it, what intrigued you about this subject and the dynamic between Unitas and and Shula?
0: Well, I think it was exactly what you, what you just pointed out. You know, we had in Baltimore, probably the greatest player who ever lived and, uh, and certainly the, the winningest coach who had ever lived. And if, if not the greatest coach. And, uh, the, when the two of them were together, they could not win the, the championship. And I thought to myself, what had happened? So the Colts had won two world championships in the late fifties. And the idea that really intrigued me was, How does a team go from being a championship team to slipping? How do they start to lose it? What begins to happen? And so that inevitably led me to the relationship between these two fascinating men. And and I had wondered why they couldn't win together when they were both so great.
1: And I wonder too, you know, did part of this stem maybe from them being former teammates? I mean, Shula was to be charitable, was an average defensive back, and and he used to get picked apart by Unitas in practice. Why were, you know, why were two blue collar guys who valued excellence and hard work be so much at odds with one another?
0: Well, I think that the similarities are exactly what made the chemistry so bad. That Unitas and Shula were both blue collar guys, they were both old world guys, their parents had come. Uh, or in Unitas's case, I'm not sure which generation came, if it was his parents or his grandparents, but he wasn't far removed from Lithuania. And, uh, Shula's parents were Hungarians. They were both from the Rust Belt. Shula was from Cleveland or nearby it. And Unitas was from, from Pittsburgh. And they were so similar. And, uh, you know, Bill Curry, he said to me, that he had lived in Kentucky and he co- coached at the University of Kentucky. And he said, y- looking at Unitas and Shula was like looking at two uh, great colts, two great uh, racehorses. He said, w- you know, where I lived, there were two great racehorses in the same fence and they couldn't stand each other and they, they would go at it. He said, that's what it was like with those two. Yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, definitely two headed guys. Yeah, you know, Unitas was used to calling his own plays under Weeb Eubank. And I think he looked at Eubank as more of a fatherly, fatherly figure. And, um, you know, here comes Shula in 1963, you know, the youngest coach at 33 years old, basically, you know, in Unitas's mind, butting in, trying to do the play calling. I mean, I guess this sort of friction was inevitable, wasn't it?
0: Oh, I think so. I think that uh, for Unitas, I mean, to to, to him – he was a great physical specimen himself, but he really didn't see himself that way. I, th- I think that he really saw himself as an intellectual. You know, he, he saw football as an as an intellectual game, and that he was really, you know, the the chess master of, of the of the team, of the sport, really. And then uh, when Shula came in, Shula was kind of um kind of like that guy from the future. You know, now every coach calls the plays, and he, you know, he wanted to have that kind of control. weirdly, you know, Unitas had built his reputation as a great play caller. In the 58 championship game, um, Sam Huff, the middle linebacker of the Giants, said he almost started to feel like Unitas was reading his mind. Everything that he called as a defensive play caller, Unitas countered perfectly and he couldn't figure out how he was doing it. But Shula weirdly didn't didn't trust him uh, to call the play so much, and that seemed to be a a situation almost from the very beginning.
1: And and part of it might have been too um, from Carol Rosenblum. I mean, I'm sure Shula felt some pressure from him because I mean Rosenblum was the kind of guy, you know, let's win now, no excuses. We won before, so I wonder how much that played into it.
0: I think that played into it tremendously. I, I, I think that Shula was under enormous pressure. Uh, right from the beginning you know and and here's something too and I touch on this in the book that that's kind of interesting Shula was the defensive coordinator of the Lions I think for three years before before he came to be the head coach of the Colts I can't remember the exact number of years but it was two or three years and he had great success against both against both the uh, Packers and the Colts and he he his defense really shut both of those teams down, and the Colts had a very hard time beating the Lions when uh, when Shula was the defensive coordinator, and I, I imagine that that had a lot to do with uh, bringing him back to Rosenblum's attention.
1: And the interesting thing with Shula being in Detroit was with George Wilson, which was a little bit ironic later on in his career, as you know, him replacing Wilson at Miami, so...
0: Yeah, well, he said, I asked him, was George Wilson a good coach? And he said, no, not really. He liked him, but he didn't really think he was a great coach. And, you know, I also asked him about replacing friends, you know, because he replaced George Wilson at, at Miami and, and Weeb Eubank had been a mentor to him in Baltimore. And he said, I never, you know, I never looked at it that way. It was an opportunity and I had to take opportunity when it came.
1: Right, and it was business too. The owners were getting ready to get rid of them anyway, so Shula was just the guy who was, you know, going to interview to take their place. So it's—I don't think it was anything personal. there. It was more business.
0: That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said.
1: You know, I like the quote that you used from Alex Karras to describe Unitas. Um, Ar- Karras was asked why he didn't try to, like, you know, just drill the Unitas into the ground when he had a chance to do so, and he said because he's as tough as any guy playing up front. I admire him for that. Do you think uh, Unitas really commanded that kind of respect throughout the league?
0: I love that quote too. Uh, uh, I think there was no doubt he commanded that kind of respect throughout the league. Uh, every defensive player respected him. Um, uh, also, Merlin Olson is quoted in the book, and he, you know, he also talked about not laying, you know, not letting up on Unitas like Karras was doing in that quote, but. But actually talking about his fear of Unitas, you know, that he knew that Unitas would uh, eventually humiliate them. And he said, I can just remember really drilling him once and putting him into the ground and driving him into the ground. There's a whole heap of men on top of us. And he said, and I opened my eyes and I looked at him and he he was looking at me with those cold blue eyes, no emotion whatsoever, none. He said, and I knew, I just knew he was going to come back and get us
1: definitely had the eyes of a killer
0: he had the eyes of a killer in a, fu- in,
1: in, in a, in a football sense i should say yeah let you know, clarify that
0: well bill curry talked about those eyes too and, and it was really interesting to me bill curry was his center you know late in his career and he was a superb center and a and a really brilliant man really bright really articulate and bill curry said um that when we would know that when Unitas was in the zone and ready to play because as he would make his warm-up throws, all of a sudden he would start blinking his eyes very rapidly and that's how you would know that he was locked in on what he had to do.
1: Yeah, that's true. You said he was like blinking incessantly and it seems so unusual to me that, you know, so you see these other guys in, in the field now and they're just, you know, have that stare in the field that, you know, I've got this. But I guess that was his way of you know, getting ready for the game.
0: I mean, I think he was just a highly intense individual. And Raymond Barry said to me that, that Unitas and Shula, bar none, were both the most intense and the most competitive men that he had ever met. He said, I'd been involved in professional football. I forgot how many years it was. It was like 50 some years, 60 years. He said, I never met any competitor as intense as either one of those two.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely intense. Um, you know, it's fun. It's interesting too, because, uh, because of that admiration that was held for United. And then after the, the 64 title game, you know, the Colts were favored you know by a large amount and they just came out and laid an egg and they got clobbered by Cleveland and United was basically thrown under the bus by his coach.
0: Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened. He, uh, I mean, the Colts played an atrocious game in all phases and, uh, they they got beat on special teams. They got they got beat on defense and they got beat on offense. And then after the game, they uh, they went to interview Shula and Shula said, "Well, he said we sure learned about their defense, didn't we? Well, Cleveland was supposed to have the worst defense in the league, so the New York Times they had decided that that was a direct shot at Johnny Unitas and they they said so. But interestingly, they also." quoted a, another NFL coach who was there and they wouldn't say his name but that coach said well Shula did not have his team well prepared at all and to me I I think that 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 coach they quoted must have been Vince Lombardi yeah well it was in New York Times and he was a New Yorker and he knew those writers very well from being a, an assistant at the uh at, at the Giants for a number of years and I, I would be almost sure and and I it, Shula really did not like um lombardi and he told me so so there must have been a lot of friction between those two
1: well those there's another intense intense guy too so you know it's it's tough when you put two intense guys in the same room
0: well i think he was even even far more intense than shula what shula said is we used to go golfing together when i was an assistant at detroit he said and every year we you know one of us would host this you know little match that we would all have and it would be me and george wilson and lombardi and he said he said, I just couldn't stand him. He, he was he was so um, bombastic, and everything had to be his way or else. So even among the most tough, difficult men, Lombardi was a dominator.
1: You know, what surprised me about Unitas is some of the stuff that you brought out in your book is that he played the field um, on and off the field, if you get my drift on that, <laughs> the, the womanizing aspect. Um, that was, was that kept under wraps pretty much during the 1960s, or did I just miss it?
0: Well, I think, you know, it it was. um, Now, you were asking, was it confined to just the 1960s?
1: No, no, no. I mean, was it, I mean, was the womanizing aspect kept under wraps by the reporters during that time period, whenever he was, whenever he was flandering?
0: Well, I would say yes for most of it. But then, you know, in the end, in the early 70s, his, his marriage blew up and, and then it became a, a messy public spectacle for him. But, he, um, you know, he was a big womanizer. His daughter was was a source for me, and she she said that, uh, the way she put it was, is that he, you know, had been from the first days of marriage, a, uh, you know, the type of guy who ran around. And that that's how he was.
1: Well, you get it, you get it from the family member. She would know better than most.
0: Yeah, well, she yeah, she was privy to you know a lot, a lot of the information. She was older when they split up, you know, an older teen, and um, and she was her mother's confidant, and she listened in on a lot of their a lot of their disagreements.
1: You know, uh, much has been made of uh, Shula's perfect season, and, and deservedly so. With the seventy-two Dolphins, I was a kid growing up in South Florida watching that. So it was, it was fun to watch. But looking back, I mean, the 67, 68 Colts to me are just as impressive and maybe even more so because of the strength of the schedule they had, the teams they had to face. Um, they lost twice and had two ties in two seasons in the regular season against teams like the Browns and the Cowboys and the Rams and the Packers. I mean, that's just phenomenal. I mean, would you compare it? Is that comp- fair to compare it to that perfect season?
0: I mean, it's funny that you say that because how you described it was exactly how I saw it, too. I saw those uh, those accomplishments in Baltimore as being even greater than the perfect season accomplishment. And, you know, and just for the exact reasons that you said, I mean, they were playing. They were playing such great coaches when you think about it. Blanton Collier was a coach of Cleveland. He should be in the Hall of Fame. They were playing Vince Lombardi. They were playing um, George Allen. They were playing George Hallis. And it was very uh, it was very intense. I mean, if you lost one game, you had the feeling that you were behind the eight ball and wouldn't make the postseason. And
1: that's what happened to them in 67. I mean, they, they go into the last game of the year undefeated. And because they had tied the Rams, whoever was going to win that last game goes on to the playoffs. And and they lost to the Rams. You go eleven one and two, and you're sitting at home. That's that's bizarre.
0: What bizarre? I mean, the Colts had the ignominy of having the very best record in football and still not right. making the postseason. Can and you I think imagine? The Packers that?
1: were nine and five that year. And went to the went to the Super Bowl. Of course, they knew how to win, but still.
0: Well, and they talk about the legendary Ice Bowl, but during that season, the Colts beat both Green Bay and Dallas in the, in the regular season, had the best record in football, and then still didn't go. It's crazy.
1: You know the, uh, the Colts. It's it's interesting to to watch that uh, to look at that period when Shula coached there because they just kept coming up short. They lost in sixty four. That sixty five game against the Packers with that bizarre field goal that don chandler kicked that was good but wasn't good and then of course the 67 thing and then in 68 we know they went 15 and one and then ran up against the jets i mean my gosh shula must have felt like he was uh you know the coach that couldn't win the big one i'm sure that was sitting on his shoulders for a long
0: time yeah well what he sa- he said was if you can't win that championship you start to hear a lot of very unkind things being said about yourself and uh, I thought that was that was a great quote, and uh, and he did feel that way. And in 1966, even you didn't include that in the list of the seasons you just ticked off. But the Colts, I think with I think it was two games to go. They still had a chance to make the postseason, and they were playing Green Bay in Baltimore. And uh, Unitas, you know, it was a close game, and Unitas had them in position to win at the very end. He faded back to pass, couldn't find a receiver. And then uh, I think it – I can't remember. Was it Robinson? I can't remember – which of their was? Oh no, it was Willie Wood. I th- no, not Willie Wood. Who was a great, the, the great defensive player that the Packers had. His name is jumping out of my head. I, do you do you remember? Well, it was one of those great, great defenders they had, and he chopped Unitas' arm, and the ball came squirting out, and they called it the the million dollar fumble at that time, and you know, and the, there was the picture of, of Lombardi with his right arm high in the air, you know, exultant as as that happened. And they, they beat the Colts and went on, to, you know, went on that year to the to the first Super Bowl.
1: Right, right. You know, Shula built his reputation on um, improvisation, you know, like using Tom Maddy and having him call the players off of his wristband when Unitas and Gary Quazo got hurt. And then in 1968, he did it again when uh, Unitas got hurt and he turned Earl I mean, was these signs of a... Uh, shula maturing as a coach i mean he was he was definitely getting his legs as a coach by that point i would think
0: yeah well it happened in the in the undefeated mm-hmm. season two with the dolphins and and uh earl moral started as a backup started more of those undefeated games than bob greasy did who was who was injured i think he, he broke his, his leg
1: uh, or broke something. his foot in and the fifth Morrill, game of the season I believe, yeah
0: who broke his foot yeah well i mean moral started yeah. like nine of those games and um, and won them all, of course. And I mean, to me, it was a sign of just what an incredibly great coach that Shula was. I mean, there was just no denying it, because under the most adverse circumstances, he was still coming out on top. Uh, that The, the uh, year that you referenced with Tom Maddy, um, I don't think you mentioned this, but Tom Maddy right. was a running back. And in those years... The uh, In the NFL, there was a certain point in the season when your roster was frozen for the postseason. I think it was with two games left to go or something like that. You couldn't bring anybody onto your roster who would be eligible for the postseason. So when Unitas got injured and then the next week, uh, Gary Quazzo, his backup, who was very highly regarded, also got injured. The Colts went to Pittsburgh and picked up a a uh, a, a quarterback who wasn't bad. And he could play in those in the last regular season game, but he wasn't eligible to play against uh, the Packers in the postseason.
1: Times have changed.
0: Times have changed a lot. Well, it's amazing that they were able to plug in Matty, who was essentially the backup halfback. They plugged him in to be the the quarterback in the most high pressure situation you could imagine, and he's facing the greatest team in history. He's facing the greatest coach in history. And in reality, he beat them. Uh, only a bad call, a clearly bad call on, on that field goal that tied the game, uh, was the only reason the Colts didn't beat the Packers that day.
1: Yeah, and I liked how they uh, they extended the the uh, field goal polls the next year, and what they called them, the Colt Colt um, poles, or whatever whatever you called it in in the book.
0: They. They called them the Baltimore extensions.
1: And, and Matty, of course, wasn't exactly a spring chicken. I mean, he could—he actually did play some quarterback in college, although he was mostly a running back. So he did have a little bit of knowledge. But I mean, you're right, though. He was—he was going into the Lions' den in that game, and he, he performed admirably
0: admirably to say the least. But it's funny, though. I mean, he you say he played quarterback in college, but he played quarterback for Woody Hayes. And as you know, m- m- most famously hated throwing the ball. And, you know, what did he say? That there were only three things that could happen when you threw the ball, and two of them were bad. So he he almost never threw. And so Shula called Woody Hayes up, and he's like, look, we're going to have to use Tom Maddy as our quarterback on Sunday. You know, what can you tell me about how he played at quarterback? He said, well... Let me just start by saying he didn't take the exchange from center very well. So, in other words, he didn't know anything about playing quarterback, nothing. He couldn't even get the ball At that from point, the center. I, if
1: I was um, innovative, I would have said, well, I'll go to the shotgun.
0: Yeah, I mean that's I mean I guess to them they didn't think of it as quote unquote the shotgun uh, something like that would have been thought of as yeah. a single wing, I think. You know, t- but I think right, no, no, you know oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, well, I mean, they basically ran a single wing offense with him in there or, or, you know, or what what were those offenses called the, you know, in more recent years when they'd have these running quarterbacks and they were doing, doing crazy like stuff the with them. He, he like was the running beer. that sort of an offense. Yeah or I I forgot what they were calling it, but, but Maddie was running, you know, he was running some more or less option plays, you know, he was, he was uh, handing off, but, you know, we had the option of keeping it and running it himself. He was, he was, uh, you know, pretending to hand off and then, and then fading back to throw mostly though, he was just doing a lot of deception and then running it himself.
1: You know, uh, two questions in my mind loom about Super Bowl three and they are, did Shula take the jets too lightly? And did he stay with moral too long during the game? What did you think?
0: I mean, those are two great questions you could probably add to it was the game (laughs) fixed, which was something that, that got brought up quite a bit. Although I didn't even uh, mention it in the book and I'll explain why in a second, but let me, let me address your two questions. The first one was, uh, was, um, what was the first of the two?
1: Did Shula take the Jets too lightly?
0: Yeah, I think there's no way that Shula would take anybody too lightly. He was extremely intense and, uh, and uh, you know, he was on the ball with everything, but, Somehow he was just not preparing for these championship games properly. It, it happened in 64 when he lost to the Browns. And for this game, you know, what Joe Namath kept insisting was, what were they going to change for the Jets? They changed nothing. You know, we knew everything they were going to do. We could see it. My own personal theory is, is that he didn't take them too lightly, but that he got out coached. and even players that loved him, you know, were very adamant that that was the case. You know, they loved Don Shula. They thought he was a great coach. But, they, you know, uh, Dan Sullivan, one of the Colts guards, he said it was clear that Weeb Eubank had outcoached him. Tom Maddie loved Shula. He said he had been outcoached in, in Super Bowl three. So I don't think he took them lightly, but I don't think that he necessarily innovated very much to to go after them. He had lost to one team in 1968, the Cleveland Browns, and he crushed them in the in the NFL championship game. And I think he went in there thinking, well, we're just going to play our game and that will be good enough. But it right. clearly wasn't. And, and then your second question was, was, did he stick with Earl Morrill too long? That's a really hard question to answer because Earl Morrill played abysmally in that game. There's no getting around it. He's a really nice man and he was a really great player. But he played a very poor game in Super Bowl three. But the reality was, Unitas, in my opinion, should not have even been the backup quarterback that day. His arm was was uh, injured, you know, to a high degree. You could see in the films of the game that he had nothing on the ball, and he, he did as well as he did because he he had so much charisma and so much leadership ability that the men became very intense when he came in. And, um, and, uh, he was so smart, but he had nothing on the ball. He should not have even been in the game. in in my opinion, he he shouldn't have been the backup, but moral moral play to, you know, just such a, a horrible yeah. game.
1: This is the famous NFL films thing of Jimmy R waving, waving his hand there in the end zone or down, downfield wide open and moral was supposed to throw it to him, but I guess he didn't see him.
0: Didn't see him. And, and uh, you know, though, that wasn't that uncommon. I found as a, in my research that there was a, a regular season game, um, you know, a year or so earlier that the Colts had lost and Unitas couldn't see a wide open receiver at, at that time either. Um, I think that uh, in the case of Jimmy Orr, what was so vexing about it was they had run the same play, which was a, a kind of a flea flicker earlier in the season against the Falcons And it worked to perfection, and Morrill threw it to Jimmy Orr. But then in the Super Bowl, it was almost the exact same play. It had to be modified slightly because of the way the Jets were playing defense. But he was wide open, and and Morrill couldn't find him. And uh, the belief was that he got lost in the the Colts marching band that was sitting in in the stands behind him wearing the same (laughs) colors. He was wearing the same colors as the band, and, and, uh, and the belief was that Morrill couldn't see him. The only problem was that wasn't the Colts marching band. They were back in Baltimore.
1: I'm sure that uh, when you talked to Joe Namath, he enjoyed uh, reenacting that game. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't he?
0: Well, you know, the interesting thing about Joe, and I really liked him. He's super smart, and he's a nice guy. He's got a great sense of humor, and he's very charming. But he is one of the world's great needlers, And he likes to rub it in. I said to him, you know, some of the Colts, they still hold the grudge against you. He said, well, yeah, I pretty much hate everybody that beat me, too. And Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Orr told me he was at a luncheon with Joe Namath one day. And he said, I didn't really know Joe Namath. I never really met him. I didn't know anything about him. And he said... uh, You know, we were across the room in this banquet room, and he caught my eye, and he's looked at me, and he makes this big smile on his face, and he starts crossing his hands and waving at me, you know, just exactly like he did in the end zone that day when Earl missed
1: (laughs) Well, that's his moment of glory. Jimmy just had to, like, grin and bear it, I guess.
0: Well, you you know, uh, Bob, what's so interesting about the whole Joe Namath story is that they focus so much on the prediction, you know, the guarantee – but in reality, it was more meaningful to me that earlier in the week uh, he went out to a bar and he's hanging out there, you know, with beautiful girls and they're drink, you know, in those days, the hard liquor, the you know, the brown liquor that they would drink. And uh, Walt Michaels, not Walt Michaels, Lou Michaels, Lou Michaels. from the Colts, uh, as tough a man as ever lived, uh, his, his college teammate, um, Sam uh, Haverlack, uh, who was later a Colt, Told me that he had to, that in college. They had to make him stop uh, practicing because um, because he was hurting everybody. He uh, I don't know if he was his college team. I think they went to different colleges. But he said in college they made him they made him sit out because he he was hurting too many of their own players in summer practice. So in this bar setting, uh, Michaels walks up to Joe and gets in his face and. And uh, Namath gets right back into Michaels' face and tells him that the Jets are going to beat him. And so, you know, Michaels, uh, this famous tough guy who, you know, was quick to use his fists, he kind of backed down to Namath. And I think that was the point where things kind of started to go in the Jets' direction.
1: Yeah, they won the psychological battle.
0: Early on, they won it. And I think, you know, another factor that people really don't talk about, I said earlier, you know, about whether or not it was a fixed game. I I mean, you could look at it and see that there was no way that it was fixed. Some of the things that went wrong for the Colts were bizarre. But I think what went right for the Jets was essentially that Weeb Eubank knew the Colts so well. It hadn't been that many years since he had been their head coach, and he had... Uh, You know, drafted virtually, you know every every good player on the Colts, and he he knew them very very well, and he knew how to beat them.
1: It it's almost the the parallel, although the the the, in terms of separation isn't the same as when John Gruden coached the Bucks and he beat the Raiders, and you know he had coached them the year before, and he knew basically every call they were going to make, and the Raiders never changed up.
0: I mean, I'd say that's a, a really good, uh, you know, a good analogy. It was very similar to that.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, Gruden came out and actually ran the plays as as here. I'm Rich Gannon. This is what he's going to do. <laughs> the defense just teed off that game.
0: I mean, what was so interesting about Weeb was as great a coach as he was, and he, as buttoned up as he was, and he, you know, he had his fingers on every detail, but he was weirdly not a, a control freak on game day. He, he liked to teach the players how to play the game and and teach them how to make the calls for themselves, and he let the players run the game on game day. Unitas was really the uh, was the boss out there, and in Super Bowl three, Joe Namath, you know, called most of the plays at the line of scrimmage.
1: True, and in in the book, and and we've been talking about football the whole time, but you also managed to weave in some good historical context into the book, particularly uh, dealing in the social hit upheaval that happened in the '60s. And for example, 1968 was such a tumultuous year in the United States politically and and socially and whatever. And it's probably too easy to say that the Colts were the establishment, the Jets were the hip cool team going into the Super Bowl three, but you know, wasn't this uh, game sort of the beginning of the rise of the modern NFL as you sort of imply in your in your subtitle
0: yeah it it was the beginning of the rise of the modern nfl without doubt but to take it back to some of the social things you were talking about and saying that you know it was too trite to say maybe that it was the establishment versus the upstarts i mean to me i almost saw you know that the uh vietnam war and and the Colts and the Jets as as having some weird similarities you know it was this idea that the that this mighty fighting force that couldn't be beaten all of a sudden uh was was you know taken on by somebody far inferior and uh, and they lost and it happened to America in, in the jungles of Vietnam and it happened to the Colts against the Jets and it was it was a very odd odd thing but there were some similarities there which was overconfidence on the part of the mighty and uh, and desperation on the part of, of the weak. And, uh, you know, so I kind of began to see that the social movements were, were, you know, very much a part of the lives of the men and the men were very much a part of, of the life of the nation. You know, those two things were far more interwoven together than I think most people uh, gave it credit. And so much so, it's interesting, but in the 1968 uh, presidential election, Both parties considered football coaches at the top of their tickets. President Nixon thought about asking Vince Lombardi to be his vice presidential candidate. And uh, and Hubert Humphrey, I'm sorry, not Hubert Humphrey, but the Democrats gave nominating votes to Bear Bryant for both president and vice president. And it just showed the status and the stature that football had achieved in the culture by that time. It
1: is interesting because Lombardi was a staunch Democrat
0: right well that and Nixon didn't know that and I think that his demeanor seemed Republican to to the country but he was a staunch Democrat and he liked John F. Kennedy and he was a progressive on homosexual rights and and on uh, racial racial uh, rights and and uh, equality. So he was very much at odds with President Nixon on most big issues.
1: True true he treated everybody the same like dogs as uh, Willie Woodson said, <laughs> said one time
0: right like dogs and that, and that that was very true that's also in the book
1: mm-hmm. Um, what I enjoyed uh, from your research was also how many different players and coaches you're able to talk to because I mean obviously it's fifty years ago but um, I liked that the uh, stuff that you got from Charlie winter um, especially because it really gave the book and the reader a true read on the Colts on the, from looking from the inside out. Uh, Who else really gave you some good perspective and talk about winter as well?
0: Well, Charlie, I have to say that I I really loved all the men that I spoke to. I mean, I had a nice chemistry with virtually every single man, but Charlie was very special to me. He was such a a, and he's still alive, but I found him to be such a decent, fundamentally decent man. So good natured, uh, very funny and he had a perfect memory. He, he was in his upper 80s when I met him, and his memory was was perfect. And he was there. You know, nobody lived football history like like he did. Um, other great perspectives that I got from other other players or coaches uh, would have been. Tom Maddie was the was by far the most candid person that I spoke to. Joe Namath was. You know, he was the most fun to speak to because he was Joe Namath. He, he's cool. And he was, you know, it, it was really, uh, you know, unbelievable to, to speak to him and, and get to ask him the, you know, questions about the hidden, you know, mysteries of that game. Um, I had a lot of fun with uh, Jimmy Orr. he invited me to sleep over his house and then he took me out to dinner at his country club. And we stayed out until the wee hours of the morning, you know, having drinks and having fun. And, you know, it was like being out with Mickey Mantle or something like that. But, you know, a lot of these guys in their own way, they were the cronies of Unitas. They, they worshiped him. They all had pictures of themselves and Johnny, U in their homes and their stature of player as players was really in relation to their, to their uh, proximity to Johnny Yu. And, um, you know, to they all had different perspectives on Unitas' personality, his playing style, and especially his, his conflict with Shula.
1: And then you had the interview with uh, Raymond Berry, who was uh, not exactly thrilled to do it, but Jan Unitas sort of prodded him. And, uh... Yeah,
0: Jam was really super nice to me, and, you know, she had her own problems with the book because it did go into his personal life, and I think, you know, she was the source material for, for a good bit of that, but she was, you know, conflicted about it. She loved her father, she loved her mother, and it was hard for her to publicly speak about those things, mm-hmm. but um, but and she, but she was so nice to me, and, and she did get Raymond Berry to talk to me, and Raymond, you know, to his you know his feeling was he liked both those men and he kind of found the subject matter distasteful but he but being a nice man he's like look i'll talk to you about everything just don't ask me about that one subject because i i don't want to talk about their conflict so we talked around it quite a bit
1: well fair enough and then then of course you got to speak with don shula
0: I got to speak to Shula. I sat on his sofa for a couple hours, and, you know, he was interesting, too. You could see what what a uh, crafty devil he was because, you know, he he didn't necessarily want to give away all of his secrets, (laughs) you know. He was happy. I mean, he had done his job. He was, you know, in his mind, he was a great coach, and, and of course, he was. He had achieved incredible things, probably surpassed Lombardi in most ways except for a number of titles being the only exception and he felt good about himself but he still felt somewhat uncomfortable talking about his relationship with unitas he didn't like to take it head on but he did give me a lot of details about about what it was like to deal with johnny U.
1: yeah he was never one to to totally dodge a question i I covered him during the 1980s and he would answer a question it may not be the answer that you wanted but he certainly (laughs) answered it
0: that was exactly how i found him and it's funny you know it, it was like to hear the players talk about how intense he was and how unpleasant he could be and i and even some of the journalists that i spoke to from baltimore and from the 60s you know was, a lot of them didn't like him but i found him to be a really affable intelligent guy and and he he seemed to be forthright even when he wasn't being forthright w- would you agree with that assessment
1: yeah he's um he knows how to work work the room let's put it that way
0: right i agree i, I liked them did did you like them and your experience with them was it was it a good experience
1: oh yes, oh yeah, very much so i mean he could uh he would answer your questions even if they were stupid, and some of them were, but um he always answered them
0: yeah, that's how that's how I found it too he He would answer it and he, even if he didn't want to, and he was very adept at the art of public relations if he didn't want to answer your question he would make his, an earnest attempt to look like he was answering your question, but then just tell you something else instead.
1: Well, it was like, I think you asked him something, something along the lines of, you know, the conflict with United States as well. You know, we want to heck of a lot of games together, you know, so. Right.
0: That, that was his initial answer. Right. Yeah. And then I pushed him further and he said, well, he said, let me be honest with you. He said to, to him, I never got over looking like a, a terrible football player to him. He, he's, you know, he still looked at me like I was that that crappy player that he had remembered from when we were teammates. Right,
1: teams. I think that, he said, that comes from the beginning when we when asked about that. He was the lousy defensive back.
0: Yeah, and actually, he really wasn't all that lousy, but he was at a transitional time in the league. He had a pretty decent number of interceptions in his career, and he was a smart player, positioned himself well, but he just – the league was transitioning into a league of much better athletes, and he didn't have the speed to hang with them anymore.
1: And here's a question that I that I referred to you in, in an email a couple of days ago, and I said, do you think that later in his career, Shula thought about how he handled Unitas when he gave Dan Marino sort of carte blanche to throw the ball during the 1980s? Do you think maybe he said, well, you know, I kind of dropped the ball with the Unitas, but let me give Marino a shot at this.
0: Well, you would know better than I would because you were, you were in South Florida and you followed that team closely. But, but uh, you know, my impression was is that he didn't do so, you know, I don't think that he and Dan Marino were so, you know, buddy-buddy either. And and uh, they never won the championship together either. And that was interesting to me. You know, Shula had three Hall of Fame quarterbacks and, uh, and they were all great. I mean, really great quarterbacks. But... Earl Morrill had by far the most success success under Shula than Unitas, Marino, or Bob Greasy. I mean, how that's possible, I'll never know, but that's how it was.
1: Um, What do you think uh, was the most challenging part of your research?
0: I found the research to be somewhat easy in the sense that a lot of the men were still alive and they were willing to talk. I wasn't always positive that they were being 100% candid with me on the subject of the relationship between the two men. I felt like maybe one or two of them might have known more than they were willing to reveal. So that was one challenge, but mostly I was surprised at how, how easy the research was in the sense that the men were still alive. They were willing to talk and, uh, and the, you know, you could find film of virtually every single game you could um, you know, there were well-written newspaper accounts and several newspapers of virtually every single game. You know, so there was there was a lot there. The real challenge was trying to f- learn what the problem was between Johnny U and Shula, because that was the one thing that had not really been reported about too much.
1: Now, from start to finish, how long did it take you to complete this project?
0: You're an experienced writer. I bet you, if you had done this project, you would have finished it in about two years. But for me, it took <laughs> about six years, and and that was because uh, I'm I'm positive I'm I'm less competent than you are. Number one even not knowing you very well, I, w- I would make that assessment. But number two, I would, you know, it was just hard for me. I'd never written a book before. And uh, i had done a lot of journalism, as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, but never had written a book. And so, you know, I had to teach myself how to do it as I went along. And then just life intervened. You know, my mother and father both died while I was working on the book. And, you know, and when you deal with things like that, as you know, writing requires an a certain intensity a a certain concentration and when you deal with you know very hard life issues like that it can throw you off you know off course for a while
1: well here's the part of the interview where i ask you what i missed is there anything you'd like to add about the book that i didn't bring up or that you would like to bring out
0: no i think that you you know you did a really fantastic interview this was really uh in-depth and good (laughs) Yeah, I I think so. I mean, you know, maybe I don't think you missed anything. I don't know if I explained everything well. You know, one thing would be just going back to uh, the point about about the era and the and the, you know, and the men. I mean, I, you know, one or two reviewers, pretty much everybody has liked the book so far. But one or two reviewers did take to task the fact that I did put in so much information about the era as well as the men. And um but to me, it's an it's an integral part of the story because, you know, at, at base, I don't really think of anything as like, let's say, a football story or a baseball story. Everything to me is a human story. And, the, you know, and the story of Collision of Wills is, is that men who can cooperate with each other can accomplish anything they want. And when two men, no matter how great they are, are at odds with each other, it's very hard for them to really get everything that they want. And sadly, I think that that's the final story of, of Johnny Unitas and Don Shula's partnership. As great as they were together, in the end, they couldn't achieve everything. And I think that their you know, their lack of ability at getting along, uh, I think it was that millimeter of difference between themselves yeah. and the Packers.
1: So do you have another project in mind? Another book, perhaps?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a book right now um, about the, horse racing. Uh,
1: Baltimore-based Preakness, perhaps, or Pimlico or anything like that?
0: It, it, it's a Baltimore based story. It's, it's oh, okay. uh, about well, a spectacular bid.
1: Well, very good. We've been,
0: yeah. And you know, I mean, well, the thing I like about, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say the thing I like about Baltimore stories is, you know, since I live here, it's uh if you hit upon the right story, you are, and it does have national appeal. That's, that's important to me. But if you hit upon that story, you're living where all of the action took place, you know, and, and that really makes a big difference. I think, for instance, in the cult story, one, one of the asides in, in the book is about the death of big daddy Lipscomb. And, uh, you know, one day I just got in my car as I was writing about it and I drove down the street where big daddy died and it's still, To this day, it's in, you know, what might be called a ghettoized neighborhood, very impoverished, Um, uh, you know, and Baltimore is still a very segregated city in many ways. And I drove down that street and, you know, it was a terrifying street and it was so it was so heartbreaking to drive down that street and think about that man losing his life in such a an inglorious way, you know, uh, on on that, you know, sad, decrepit street. It was, you know, so when you live where the history happened, it really brings it to life for you.
1: Well, okay, we've been speaking with Jack Gilden, author of *Collision of Wills*, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Jack, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Bob. I really loved it. I really appreciate the interview.